This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Countering the threat of right-wing extremism in the U.S. and caregiving in the time of COVID. I talk with a daughter trying to navigate the pandemic with her mother who suffers from Alzheimer's. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, Nova Scotia became the first jurisdiction in North America to implement a policy of presumed consent for organ donation. This means all people in the province are considered organ donors unless they opt out. Children under the age of 19 are exempt from the law. Recent figures show 250 Canadians died while waiting for a transplant in 2019, and nearly 4,500 patients were still waiting for transplants at the end of that year. An old U.S. Supreme Court case has determined that states can require vaccines, and the federal agency that oversees employers says employers can too. It stems from a 1901 court case when some objected to a mandatory vaccine for the deadly smallpox, but the court ruled in favor of the government. This court case forms the basis for guidance by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which makes clear that employers may make similar demands of their workers. This really picked me back up allowing me to make a comeback. Charlie Brotman is back on the job. After not being invited to perform at Donald Trump's inauguration in 2017, the 93-year-old once again served this week as the inaugural parade announcer as Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th U.S. president. It marked his 16th time for 11 different presidents. Brotman's first inaugural parade announcer appearance was in 1949 for President Harry S. Truman's second inauguration. Vogue will publish a limited print edition of its February issue featuring Kamala Harris with a new photo. This follows widespread backlash against the original cover image, which was widely held to disrespect the first black female and South Asian vice president. As we highlighted last week, that photo, which showed Harris posing in her own casual clothes and Converse sneakers, also drew criticism for poor quality. The widely preferred alternative cover, which features the vice president in a light blue suit against a gold background, was originally created for the magazine's digital edition, but will now appear in a limited print run. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world.
This week, the Biden administration took power in the U.S. with 25,000 National Guard troops standing by. Since the storming of the Capitol two weeks earlier, security experts agree that right-wing extremists pose the biggest domestic threat to America. I talked with Brian Hughes, Associate Director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University. The extreme right remains a very significant threat. Uh, The fact that Donald Trump is no longer president does not necessarily mean that this goes away. Uh, In fact, if anything, it's making uh, certain groups and certain individuals much, much more angry. They're no longer in political power, or they no longer see themselves as being in political power. And when that happens, um, these groups are more likely to lash out violently. Who are these groups? These groups are really a a mixture, uh, kind of a jumble of um, far-right militias, old-school-style white supremacists and neo-Nazis, far-right street gangs like the Proud Boys, um, conspiracy cults like QAnon, uh, and the so-called Patriot Movement, uh, which is really a a far-right American subculture that uh, idealizes a kind of mythic version of uh, the United States' founding. 74 million people voted for Trump. Would you say that they are all part of this movement? Absolutely not. No. Uh, I would say that uh, this movement represents a minority, uh, even uh, in the American conservative movement. Um, And in fact, that's one of the things that makes it so troubling. Uh, These are extremist groups who are trying to recruit everyday rank-and-file Republicans. And in our polarized political climate, um, they have a much easier job of doing that recruiting than they should have. There's word that a lot of them seem to have military training, and they're certainly armed. Yes, uh, that's true. Uh, Now, this isn't anything new. Um, The the extreme right has had a presence in uh, the United States' security services uh, for a long, long time. Uh, It's very troubling, though. Some uh, extremist groups even encourage their members uh, to join the military or to join the police as a way of obtaining training uh, and weapons. This is something uh, that really has to be rooted out. And I hope that uh, the events of January 6th are are causing our security services to see what an important issue this is and uh, prompting them to take action. Do you think these far-right groups have surpassed Islamic fundamentalists as, as a terrorist threat? Absolutely. This is uh, very well established by this point, um, that the uh, threat of violence from uh, the extreme right is worse than the threat of violence from Islamist terrorists. Uh, we should really um, mention that uh, the far-right, that far-right terrorists have been a part of uh, the United States uh, since at least the Civil War, and really going back even further than that. Uh, Islamist extremism is, relatively speaking, a blip historically. It's only been with us for a few decades, um, and it uh, seems to be ebbing right now, uh, whereas uh, deaths from uh, far-right terrorism uh, are on the upswing. How has social media played into this? Unfortunately, social media has played a really significant role. Um, It allows these groups to uh, mass broadcast uh, their propaganda. Uh, The way that social media clusters people together 
uh, through shared interests and um, recommends new groups to join, uh, has a way of gathering together what were once pretty uh, scattered and disparate groups. And it gives uh, these extremist groups a really easy entry point into the lives of that ordinary rank and file. You know, in the olden days, you would have to go to um, a gun show or a skinhead music concert to really make contact with a far-right extremist. Uh, But nowadays, that extremist can just uh, ping you on social media and say, hi, how's it going? Would you like to talk about racism? How would you characterize the people who are drawn to this movement uh, by socioeconomic bracket or um, psychographic or anything like that? Sure. It's important to, to understand that poverty is not associated with extremism. Uh, there's no link between poverty and extremism. Well, where the link exists is where um, economic precarity and a sense of entitlement come together. So people who feel as though they deserve certain things in life and also feel that uh, those things might be taken away from them and given to someone who doesn't deserve them, those are the people who are most at risk for being radicalized into extremism. So really, it, you see it much more in the middle class than in the, um, than in the poor. Um, and from a, a psychological perspective, we very frequently see extremism tied to trauma. Uh, we see it tied to um, a sense of social dislocation. Uh, people join extremist groups um, at similar points uh, in their lives uh, to when people join cults. Uh, they join uh, at periods of transition, uh, when they're looking for a surrogate family, um, or uh, when they're looking for easy answers to complex questions. What's the relationship between the political extremism and belief in QAnon? Extremist groups recognize that QAnon is uh, easy pickings for recruitment, uh, particularly now that so many um, people who followed QAnon have become disillusioned. You know, the, the great awakening that they were promised hasn't happened. Donald Trump is no longer president. So a lot of them are disillusioned. They're feeling socially dislocated. Uh, they're feeling like something they were entitled to, a second Trump term, has been taken from them and given to someone who doesn't deserve it, a Democrat. This makes them extremely vulnerable to recruitment by extremists. Uh, and we see, actually, online, we're seeing guides that white supremacists and neo-Nazis are passing around that give one another instructions for the best way to radicalize these people, just a little bit at a time, Here's how you get someone from believing in QAnon to uh, believing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Joe Biden is talking about unifying the country. Uh, he's very empathetic. Uh, what do you think the chances are? We can't have healing. We can't have empathy. And we can't have unity if we don't have accountability. There are people um, who are still in public life who are responsible for stoking the fires of this violence. And they need to be, um, they, they, they need to be removed from public life, frankly. Uh, people need to recognize the role that some of these figures have played, and these people have no right uh, to be in government or to be in media. Brian Hughes, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Brian Hughes of American University. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, 
a caregiver's journey during COVID. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. As if caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's wasn't hard enough, the pandemic has magnified the challenges for both caregivers and patients, and for many, it has hastened the course of the disease. Carrie Thompson is the essential caregiver for her mom, Joyce, who lives at a retirement residence in Aurora. My mom has taught me everything I know, and unfortunately now... Uh, the roles have reversed a little bit with her Alzheimer's, and I feel like I'm teaching her all the things that she taught me over the years. So we're together. Every day I visit her, she lives in a retirement home here in Aurora. That's been our life for the last 18 months. We've been navigating services and different things to to help her out and help her go through this process as gracefully as possible, and me too. <laughs> And uh, then COVID hit. Tell me about her. What's what's her name? What's she like, you know, before? My mom's name is Joyce Gladys O'Rourke. And uh, when she married, her surname became Thompson. Uh, she was born in Montreal. Uh, she is a person, well, she was actually the first female supervisor in a very male-dominated world in the 60s, and uh, she worked for Bell Canada proudly for many years, and then had a family, my sister and I, and our family moved uh, from Montreal to Belleville, Ontario, where we grew up. My mom is a helper. She was delivering meals on wheels to seniors. So that's kind of amazing. In her 80s, she didn't think of herself as a senior and doing a lot of volunteer work uh, in town. She's a great conversationalist. Uh, She loves to listen to people's stories and has always got a a thoughtful, helpful ear. That's my mom. Do you still get glimpses of her old self? Yes. The movie The Notebook is really very true. There are glimpses of her old self. Um, she can be very feisty. She she knows when I have kind of pushed the limits and I'm not I'm not being as gentle a caregiver as I could or should be. And she will just kind of cut through that fog and she'll say, Carrie, treat me like a person, be kind. Um, the other thing she does during these COVID times, which I think is very uh, very smart of her through through her challenges is she'll just say to me, Carrie, sometimes I just feel like screaming. And I think you're there, Mom, because you should feel like screaming. This is really tough. T- tell me about you. So caregiver roles can be very difficult and draining. What's What's your situation in terms of your family work and all of that? asking and noticing that. It it can be. I have uh, a lot of support through my husband and son. They will spell me off and and visit when I just don't feel like I have the time due to work or I'd like to go for a walk with friends or walk the dog. So it um, it is difficult, but now with COVID, people in retirement homes are limited to one or two essential caregivers. So I'm actually it. My sister lives in the U.S. and can't get here easily. So 
I'm I'm my mother's person, so I'm the person since March who has every day visited my mom either at the window, which was terrible when I couldn't get inside, and, and now inside visiting in her room for the last many months. How are you doing? All kinds of thoughts go through your head as to what statistic would you be, one of the happy ones who recovers from COVID or one of the ones whose life is taken away. So, yeah, so I was quarantined, as was my family, as was my mother, as was the entire retirement home. Oh, my goodness. So it is just uh, something that happens really swiftly, and people are incredulous because I'm a person who's a rural follower, so I didn't do anything to risk myself, my mom, or anybody else. And how I got COVID is, is a big mystery, but nevertheless, I got it, and it lingers. Have you seen your mother since? Yes, yes, yes. And she was negative. That's right. She was negative all the time. Like She is just a, a queen warrior. The challenge is, at that older age, and with Alzheimer's, if she's not stimulated, she starts to lose things very quickly. I mean, she's losing things anyway. But to, to not have lots of time of conversation, I noticed that she's more in inside herself, inside her mind, and less able to express herself and have a conversation. She's less confident in her walking because she's been stuck in her room for different periods of time due to COVID. So, and she's losing weight. I mean, my mom, my mom was the one that would always say, oh, the thinner is the winner, that kind of adage from old, (laughs) old days. And boy, She's winning, unfortunately, because she's getting very thin, so therefore very frail. One thing that we hear from uh, loved ones of, of people in congregate settings, in nursing homes, retirement homes, is that they've seen a, they see a big marked deterioration. Have you seen that over the course of COVID? Oh, yes. So my mother's retirement home was in a two-month outbreak lockdown through a series of horrific cases progressing through the through the facility. So on December 26, they were finally able to, to get out of lockdown. And I was there. And not only did I see it in my mom, but I saw it in, I mean, I'm only allowed to walk the hall directly to my mom's room, but just in those moments, I could glance and see a door open here and a person there. And they were different. They were different. Like I don't even quite know the words, but they just felt like shells in themselves. Like they they just didn't have the same mobility. They didn't, you know, look up bright eyed and wave and say hello because they've seen me every day there for eighteen months. They, there was just just this distance to them. It was gut wrenching. Carrie, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate talking to you. Very nice to talk to you, Libby. Thank you for the great work that you do. That was caregiver Carrie Thompson. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy. Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.